today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, in Canada, obviously every season there is a fire season, uh, specifically uh, out west and, uh, well, I guess anywhere where there's forest, which is pretty much everywhere, coast to coast. And uh, obviously seeing lots of footage of what is happening uh, in in British Columbia and, and the, uh, the efforts they are trying to make to preserve uh, towns and forests uh, in British Columbia. Let's bring in uh, David Martel, co-leader of the Fire Management Systems Laboratory in the Faculty of Forestry at the University of Toronto and is with us now. David, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yes, I am. Thank you. Uh, how does this season's forest fire season in British Columbia compare to others or, or even that of across Canada at this point? Well, so far it's been more severe than normal. Typically, the it, it seems to be starting a little earlier than it typically gets worse in British Columbia. And uh, they're getting a lot of fires. So, so it's basically a lot worse than it's typically been in the past. And uh, how do you go about or, or, or how do you address these? I mean, obviously, it depends on where it is and such. But w- when you're in the, uh, the field of forestry management, how do you attack these? Well, basically, fortunately in Canada, we've got a we, provincial fire, forest fire management is basically the responsibility of provincial governments. And, and all of the provincial governments and territories have fire management organizations and they're professionals and they're trained and they're qualified and basically their job is to deal with. So so typically what happens is they have prevention programs, they have detection programs, and when fires are detected and reported, they have what are called initial attack forces, firefighters, helicopters, air tankers that they send to fires to try to contain them. And, and if they're not able to contain them at a small size and they become large, then they become the kind of problems you've been seeing about uh, for the last few days in British Columbia. And, and there are systems and processes that have been set up for dealing with those. So typically, uh, when, when you have a large fire, and basically they, they have a number of those in British Columbia, they put in what's called an incident management team. And that incident management team, their job is to deal with that particular fire. And, and, and they will have, you know, many, many firefighters, many helicopters, many, many uh, they can bring in other resources as they need them, bulldozers and, and, and other resources like that. And basically their objective is to get a line around that fire. Uh, we have we heard much about the cause here. We heard that it is uh, started by a human or lightning strikes or even uh, trains. What, what do we know here? Well, we know that there are a mixture of fires. I think there are, as of yesterday, I think there were 300 fires burning in in, in British Columbia, and some of them were classified as human caused. Some of them were classified as natural or lightning caused, and I'm sure some of them they have yet to determine the cause. Is there anything we can do ahead of time to prepare for this? I remember watching a a report a few days ago with uh, an Indigenous leader that said that, you know, this isn't being managed properly. Is there something else we can do to prepare for this as far as, um, you know, whether it's uh, pre-burning, the way we build, whatever? Well, what what you're basically referring to is, is when you have large fires that are threatening communities, what can you do to protect those communities. So so there's a lot of things you have to do, but the first thing that you want to do around communities long before you're threatened by fire is to go out and and the term that we use is to fire smart the community. And and that is basically look at fire people look at forests as fuel. So you look at the fuel or the vegetation around the community. And basically, you know, every community is different, but you basically look out 
around 500 meters around that community and you say, where, where have we got flammable fuels around this community and what can we do to, to get them into either get rid of them or get them less flammable? So, and, and, and you also want to make sure that, you know, firebrands from fires blow a long distance. So you also want to go into the community itself and you want to do things like make sure you have fire resistant roofs, make sure that you've, you don't have, uh, you know, old pine needles in the in the east troughs around your house. Don't have firewood piled beside your house. Uh, don't have flammable garden vegetation near your house. And 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 fortunately, you know, the important thing to remember is every community is different. So so basically, if you're in a community that's at risk, then you, then you get together with your local fire management organization and you say, okay, what do we got to do to reduce the risk to this particular community? And and they're all and, and even before you do that, it's not like you're going to be able to contact those people today. They're they're obviously very busy. But there's a there's an organization called Fire Smart Canada, which has an incredible amount of resources on the internet to make available to people to tell them what they can do around their community. When is pre-burning used as uh, as a way to combat this? Well. The, I, I don't know that much about how much prescribed burning is going on in, in, in British Columbia, but, but basically one of the treatments that is sometimes used is to burn some of the vegetation around the community if it, if it can be done safely. Um, what are we going to learn from what's happening in B.C.? Uh, I'm not sure what we're going to learn that we don't already know. We, we, we know that we have a climate change crisis. We know that it's exacerbating fire problems. We know that we have to uh, deal with it. Uh, and, and we have to probably, I guess the one thing that we, that we the last few years have basically told us is we have to fire smart and protect our communities more than we have been doing in the past. That's, that's probably the single most important take-home message from what's been happening the last few years. David Martell with us, professor, co-leader of the Fire Management Systems Laboratory and Faculty of Forestry at the University of Toronto. David, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you, and thanks for having me. Have a good afternoon. You too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Three of the four victims of Monday's tragic crane collapse in Kelowna have been identified through social media. GoFundMe says verified fundraising pages have been set up for brothers Eric and Patrick Stemmer of Salmon Arm, plus Jared Zook. The page for the Stemmer brothers was set up by Emily Roy, who says they were husbands, fathers, sons, friends, and chosen family. On the page for Zook, it asked for donations so his parents, based in Edmonton, could cover funeral costs. Organizer Krista Walker says the loss of Zook is devastating, saying their lives were infinitely better having known him. Catherine Garrett, Global News. This, of course, on the Kelowna, B.C. crane collapse. A fifth person has been confirmed dead uh, as of this morning as uh, crews try to uh, uh, investigate and secure the site and uh, continue on with their investigation. Let's bring in Doug uh, Perovic, professor in the Department of Material Science and Engineering with the University of Toronto and, with, and is with us now. Doug, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Thanks, Scott. Good to be with you. Uh, obviously, we don't know what happened here. This is an ongoing investigation, but speculation as, as to what uh, had happened from what you have seen. 
Well, I mean, uh, you you know, typically when the information and the evidence is sparse, you uh, in any forensic investigation want to start working backwards. And uh, for crane failures, uh, there are really four different uh, you know main potential causes. Um, the main one, the most common one, is weather-related events, and that uh, I'm referring particularly to wind. And then there's operator error, uh, overloading. And then fourthly, uh, mechanical failure. And from what I know, uh, what's been reported, uh, this crane was actually not in operation. They're in the process of dismantling it. So mm-hmm. you can start to uh, eliminate some of those possibilities. And I checked the weather um, and the climate data for that uh, point in time, and the wind gusts were not more than about 40 kilometers per hour. So that pretty well rules out uh, weather uh, effects. So it's pointing to a mechanical failure. Uh, would be construction of these and dismantling the the most dangerous time of operation, I would assume? Well, it could be, but, uh, you, you know, they, this, they, they go up and down all the time. So there's yeah. well-developed uh, procedures uh, for uh, dismantling, uh, similarly as, as erecting the crane. You're, you're just sort of going in reverse and, um, and following uh, those procedures. So... Uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, uh, it's, it's hard to say whether something was, uh, uh, unusual at that very moment, uh, that led to some kind of, uh, imbalance, uh, in the loading, you know, cranes like to be balanced. Uh, that's when they're happiest. Uh, so, you know, was there a, uh, a, a sort of, a, a flaw defect in some component that was, just uh, close to uh, the point of failure and then something triggered it, uh, you know, the, the forensic investigation will determine that. Obviously, uh, when you look around any city, any any development, there, there there's, uh, I don't know how many of these operating in Canada at any given time. Is the process safe? Is this something we should be looking into? It certainly doesn't happen a lot. And when it does, as you mentioned, it, it usually is weather-related. How safe are these? You know, they're safe. Uh, this crane failures are a very rare event, uh, and that's including, uh, you know, weather-related uh, causes, which is, you know, the large, large majority of uh, reasons cranes uh, fail. And you know, I'm involved, actually, with uh, a couple of investigations involving uh, weather. So taking that out uh, as sort of spontaneous collapse like this uh, without uh, wind effects uh, is, is, is very rare. And, um, you know, the... The um, the guidelines in this case in BC uh, there's WorkSafe BC uh, you know oversees uh, workplace safety and so on but the uh, you know the requirements are very strict for uh, structures like this uh, in terms of annual inspections uh, maintenance records uh, certification of operators and and that you know that's that's carefully uh, regulated. Uh, that was my my next question. Uh, what about training for those operating? I mean, obviously, this is a specialized skill. Yeah, it's a specialized skill. Uh, you basically have to go to crane school. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, as I said at the start, uh, this crane actually wasn't uh, in operation. It was it was in the process of being uh, deconstructed, dismantled. So, uh, you know, we're now looking at the not so not the operation per se, but the dismantling procedure uh, that was being uh, uh, implemented.
Uh, obviously, uh, if you look at the footage, there's still a large portion of the crane still standing. How difficult will this be to to take down? How 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 tricky will that be, considering the damage done? It should be relatively straightforward. I mean, uh, you're obviously going to need to bring in uh, at least another crane to. Uh, I mean, they, they would do that anyway during the dismantling process uh, to remove. Uh, the sections of the uh, the jib, the jib or the boom, the uh, the horizontal part at the top. Um, so, yeah, I mean that's obviously all come down, and you know, what's still standing is the tower section. So, uh, that is relatively straightforward to uh, remove. But um, no, they'll they'll be able to uh, to, to both remove what's uh, what's there, but uh, also obviously more importantly to uh, before moving things too much, uh, you know, reverse engineer, uh, do a reconstruction, I should say, of um, of all the components to get to the origin of this failure. Do you think they will find the cause, Doug? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah this, this is relatively straightforward. I mean, you know, compared to the recent uh, tragedy that we've all heard uh, in Miami, I mean, there's mm. the opposite situation where, right. you know, the evidence gets, uh, you know, crushed and, and covered, and it's uh, that becomes now, uh, ex- you know, extreme, extremely more difficult to uh, get to, uh, you know, uh, undamaged, uh, you know, when I, I mean damage after the fact, the areas where the origin may have occurred, uh, similar to like a fire investigation. If uh, a building is obliterated by fire and burned to the ground, uh, you know, a fire investigator often uh, can only say uh, it's it's undetermined. Uh, the, the evidence has been. Uh, destroyed beyond uh, recognition, but in this case, no, it's it's all there. Uh, it's not, you know, um, uh, covered or, or obscured mm-hmm. in some way. So I, I think it should be quite straightforward. Doug Perovic's been with us, professor in the Department of Material Science and Engineering with the University of Toronto, commenting on that tragic Kelowna, BC crane collapse. Doug, thanks for the time and insight. Be well. Just God, take care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.